It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Richard, we're about to venture into a topic that can be a bit of a quagmire for people who comment on public policy. Yep. How good or bad is America's healthcare system? We spend vast amounts of money in our country, far more than any other nation. But how does the U.S. system actually compare with others around the world? Which country has the world's best healthcare? Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Well, every country feels like its healthcare costs are high. Ours are stratospheric. They just feel theirs are high and putting pressure on both government spending and individual spending. Our drug costs are way higher than any other countries, but every country is feeling pressure from drug costs. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? With the COVID pandemic and the upcoming presidential election this year, proposals to reform the healthcare system are front and center. And when, when aren't they? But, you know, there are so many slogans around this and so much political heat on both sides. And they don't do that much to really improve our understanding. As we so often say on this podcast, Richard, it's complicated. Yeah, so today we consider how America's healthcare system compares with others around the world. Can we learn lessons from other nations? Professor, bioethicist, and Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel is an expert on healthcare systems. He's a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. He was a senior advisor in the Obama administration. Dr. Emanuel's new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? He's also the host of a podcast about the coronavirus pandemic called Making the Call. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Great to be here, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, welcome. And is it all right if we call you Zeke? Uh, everyone else does. <laughs> that's what I've heard. Okay. So let's start with the pandemic. Obviously, it's the thing that's been consuming all of us. What do you think is the greatest lesson or lessons that we've learned over the last few months? Well, I think the greatest lesson is that public health measures really work. And if you implement them stringently and seriously, you can get to the top of the curve and come back down the other end of the curve. And you can actually slowly and methodically open up your economy because you can identify outbreaks and easily 
do contact tracing and isolation. Um, unfortunately, in general, we haven't done that in the United States. Other countries have done that much more successfully, and we have been unable to do these kind of stringent measures. Speaking of COVID and the fact that you have studied other countries' health systems in such detail, are there two or three countries that you did look at that have performed especially well in this current emergency? Yes. And the standout country is Taiwan. They have performed the best in the world, in my humble opinion. Uh, They have less than 500 cases and just seven deaths. It could have been a disaster in Taiwan. They're less than 100 miles off China. A million Taiwanese work in China, and there are hundreds of flights daily between Taiwan and China, and yet they avoided disaster. And there are many elements to that. One is they're very suspicious of China. SARS taught them to be suspicious of infectious agents arising from China. Second, they have a face mask culture, as a colleague of mine said. Um, And so wearing face masks to prevent infection is something very common in Taiwan, and that goes a long way as we're now learning. And the third most important thing, which relates to my study, is that they actually have this health card, and the health card alerts the Ministry of Health anytime someone visits a doctor, why they visited, what the charges were in terms of tests and treatments, and they use that information to link it to the immigration and custom information and allow them to identify people who've been to Wuhan, China. It also allowed them to identify people who had respiratory symptoms, but were negative for influenza. And therefore, they could suggest to their doctor, test these people. They've been to Wuhan or test these people. They have respiratory symptoms. Maybe they have COVID. And that really rapidly allowed them to identify everyone and to tamp down the spread quite rapidly. And that health card is part of their healthcare system, not part of a public health infrastructure. We spoke with the Bloomberg bureau chief in Taiwan uh, to talk about their success story. And uh, if you haven't heard that episode, it's certainly worth uh, listening to. So you mentioned the health card in Taiwan. We don't have anything like that in the U.S., do we? And in fact, our electronic record keeping is kind of a mess. I wouldn't say it's a mess. I mean, since the uh, Recovery Act, where the federal government funded hospitals and doctors to put in place electronic records, we have created that infrastructure. Where we are in a mess, there are two things. We don't have interoperability. So sending information from one system to another system, that is still a mess. On the other hand, we also do have a culture where people are suspicious of either giving their information to the government or giving their health information to uh, private companies. I think a lot of people feel like they're exploited. They're commercializing my information rather than using it for my benefit. Um, But we could create, I think, a neutral third party that's not going to commercialize this, not going to exploit people, simply going to use it to promote health. And I do think that would be a huge advantage, especially in things like pandemics or influenza outbreaks or measles outbreaks, to really understand and, and rapidly get the healthcare system to respond. You know, so many Americans are just fed up with our system. And and I think a lot of us assume that some other country, the UK or Germany or, or somebody else must have a much better system. I know that was the impetus for this particular book. But you say other countries do face a lot of similar challenges. What are they? Well, every country feels like its healthcare costs are high. Ours are stratospheric. They just feel theirs are high and putting pressure on 
both the government spending and individual spending. Again, our drug costs are way higher than any other countries, but every country is feeling pressure from drug costs. A second common stressor is long-term care. All the populations are aging. Not many countries have actually put in a financing structure for long-term care. Then there's the problem of chronic care management. All the healthcare systems in the Western world and Taiwan and other places are built on acute care. You go to the hospital, you get patched up, you go out. But 85 cents of every dollar is spent on chronic care, congestive heart failure, emphysema, hypertension, cancer, asthma. And there, going to the hospital, getting patched up is not the right solution. You need attention and you need to be able to self-manage every day for the rest of your life. And that requires a different relationship, not providing care in the hospital, moving it to the outpatient, having doctors who proactively reach out to patients, making sure they're adhering to medical regimens. And adhering to a medical regimen for the rest of your life is really tough. Um, So those are just some of the commonalities across all countries. Before we go further, uh, what are the 11 countries that you studied? Going on the Pacific Rim, Australia, Taiwan, China, Canada, the United States. And then we did Britain, the UK, Norway as our Scandinavian country, the Netherlands because it has managed competition, Germany, Switzerland because Switzerland tends to be a darling of conservatives who like free market system, France because the French were rated number one by uh, the World Health Organization way back in 2000. And many people think they have an excellent system. You mentioned long-term health care, which is not exactly a headline news story. We, we've had a lot of debates around health care. But long-term health care is, is, is a huge problem here in the U.S. and in other countries. Could you describe what you mean by the long-term health care crisis so that you know, people perhaps who haven't been really up on that uh, have, a, have a better sense of it? Well, the people who are experts in the field talk about a tsunami of patients coming because as the life expectancy increases, you get more people living into their 80s and 90s. Uh, they have multiple chronic conditions typically. So you have a situation where a lot of people become dependent They need someone to help them with their medical care or they're living alone and it's just too much for them to do all the things that require going out shopping and other things. It's become a major crisis everywhere. Is it nursing home? Most countries are moving to what's called aging in place, allowing people to stay in their homes or stay in their relatives' homes and supporting that financially, giving them some money either to have a relative care for them or to have an outside caregiver to come into the house. But as far as we could tell from the uh, 11 different countries we looked at, only two of them have a solid financial mechanism for long-term care, the Netherlands and Germany. Everyone else is putting it together with bailing wire and chewing gum. And as more and more of the population ages, it's a huge problem. And it's even worse in China than many other places because they had the one-child policy. So you have one daughter or daughter-in-law caring for four parents. Um, And that is a huge, huge burden. You write that with all the problems we have in the U.S. healthcare system, you call it the best at innovation. Why is that? Why? Because uh, we have a lot of problems. So we have to be innovative to solve some of those problems. So I think that's one of the inputs. We have higher costs. We don't have universal coverage. We have uneven quality. And I think that has really inspired a lot of attempts at innovation. I also think it's in the culture here. We tend to be the most innovative people in the world. Typically, that had been directed at 
you know, new surgical procedures or new drugs or new imaging mechanisms. But increasingly, it's also been directed at new ways of delivering care, new ways of financing care, new ways of trying to get people optimal care, monitoring them at home. Is there some sense in which maybe the rest of the world benefits from our ridiculously expensive, inefficient, but innovative system? I mean, you mentioned all the the drugs that we pay a huge amount of money for, but once they're invented, they go around the world and ultimately get a lot cheaper. I would say yes and no to that question. It is the case that we do invent a lot of drugs. In large part, we have this huge incentive because we pay more than any other country by a long shot. The United States is about 4% of the world's population, and we spend about 40 to 45% of the world's spending on drugs. Um, And it is true that a lot of the innovations here spread to the rest of the world. But don't forget, a lot of the big drug companies aren't American. Novartis, Roche, AstraZeneca. So, you know, there's a lot of other companies out there. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel about his new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Zeke, I'm, I'm struck by your humility. Uh, one of the most interesting things I've learned from you is that the complexity of the U.S. healthcare system is somewhat overwhelming and that it's difficult for patients to navigate. Why is it so complex? Well, I, I think, you know, it's the way we end up reforming it. We couldn't do a big reform that just took the whole system in and redid it in a rational way. And I think President Obama was pretty overt about this. He said, you know, if we were redesigning the whole healthcare system, we might go to a single payer or we might do some other reform. But instead of doing a comprehensive reform, we tend to do salami slices. So, you know, we do Medicare for the elderly, Medicaid, which is structured differently for low-income individuals. When we did the ACA, well, some people who were higher income, we put them in an exchange, which were created newly, and then we put other people into Medicaid. When Bill Clinton couldn't pass his comprehensive health care reform, he added CHIP, children's plan, on top of Medicaid with different rules. We do this layering on and the layering on becomes a mess and often has contradictory policies. Let me just tell you one, which I'm affiliated with as part of the ACA. So for Medicaid, we assess your income eligibility for Medicaid by looking at the last month's income. Uh, But for the exchanges, we look 
to last year's income or two years ago income, actually. And that is like, why, why are these two different you know, eligibility policies? They don't make any sense. It becomes complicated to figure out which one you're eligible for. And most countries, no, all countries have a much simpler system. And when you have a simpler system, two things are possible. You get everyone enrolled. And it's administratively much cheaper. And speaking of that, it's also very difficult for people to navigate it. Uh, I know that that in our household, for instance, I do all the bills except for health care. And I think I've got a better deal than, than my wife. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The bills are a problem. Uh, knowing what's covered is a problem. Knowing how much you owe is a problem. And, and these problems are, if they exist in other countries, are much, much smaller. What do you think is the most important step we can take right now? We cannot get the universal coverage under the current structure. We have 14 states, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and 11 others, implacably against expanding Medicaid. Ergo, there is no way in the United States to get to 99 plus percent coverage. There is no universal coverage mechanism. To get to universal coverage, we are going to have to federalize Medicaid and take it away from the states. Um, so that is important. And I think if we do that, we could simplify the system. Uh, and that's important. We also have to add on auto enrollment. So people, someone who hasn't signed up for insurance or doesn't have employer, they automatically get enrolled into whatever we're going to create as a substitute for Medicaid. That will be hugely beneficial. It'll get us to 99% coverage. It'll simplify the system and it'll reduce administrative costs. So I think that's one. I also think we ought to regulate drug prices. They're way too high. I think we have to regulate the prices in other parts of the healthcare system, like hospitals for private insurance. They become just way too high also. Zeke, a few years ago, you wrote a very famous article for The Atlantic called, I Hope I Die at 75. You were born in 1957, as was I, so I think we've got about 13 years left. How are you feeling about that now? I'm feeling great. So first of all, let's clarify for your listeners, authors do not choose titles, and that title doesn't reflect so, what I argue. As a longtime magazine editor, I can vouch for that. We were always putting headlines on articles that would exaggerate the, the core thesis of the piece in ways that sometimes really got our writers in trouble. To drive sales. <laughs> let's be honest. Well, my, my, my position in that paper is, I want to clarify two things. First of all, it was a personal philosophy. It's a my philosophy. It's not a public policy philosophy. A lot of people who want to just uh, uh, tag me uh, from the right uh, say, you know, we don't want this guy in public policy. It's my personal philosophy. It has nothing to do with my public policy. And as you know, from my activities in COVID, I'm trying to save the elderly in nursing homes and trying to make sure that they're well protected. I'm not trying to knock them off as uh, some Republicans like the Lieutenant Governor of Texas seem to want to do. Second of all, uh, my philosophy is not that I want to die at 75. I hope to live past 75. My philosophy is I don't want to take life prolonging treatments after 75. But for example, if I were running and broke my hip, I would definitely get my hip replaced. But I also don't want to be infirmed, incontinent, and a burden on my family. Um, you set out when you started the research for your book to ask the question, which country has the best health care? Uh, what's the answer? Well, it depends what metric you're using. So I, we're against the rankings that have been produced. There have been nine different rankings out there and they don't agree with each other 
at all. If you care about not paying money at the point of care, you know, you'll look to Britain, you'll look to Canada, you'll look to Germany as models. If you care about unlimited choice of any doctor, Germany, Switzerland, France will rise to the top of your list. If you want low drug prices, well, you're probably looking at Norway, Australia, Taiwan. So it really depends what your criteria are. There are a group of countries we identify that do do better on average, uh, but what they do better in may not be the thing you happen to be interested in. Zeke, your name comes up all the time when people are talking about the future of healthcare policy in this country, especially if there is a Biden administration. Would that be something you'd be interested in serving, um, again, in, in an administration and helping bring some of these ideas to fruition? My parents raised us to measure our life by our contributions to American society and what we can do to improve the situation in America. Public service is one way you can do it. Um, and if called upon to serve in the government again, I would be happy to do it. it. It was one of the most meaningful and rewarding things I did in my life when I served in the Obama administration. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you. This has actually been a great okay, interview. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> And before our conversation, it's our recommendation and something new this week, a recommendation from our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Hi, I'm just going to pop in here and recommend an amazing book by the writer Lily King. It's called Writers and Lovers, and it's just a great book about a young female writer, and it's a rare, serious novel that has a happy ending. So speaking of happy endings, Richard, it's time for us to try to wrap up this massive topic. And I, I think one thing that's impressive uh, about Dr. Emanuel's book is that he's very modest about the fact that there is no one country or one model that we can turn to for easy answers in this debate. This, these, this question will never be easy. And I think you and I probably come down on pretty different sides of it. Yeah, I come down much more in favor of, of universal health care. And I think that uh, absent any better solution, there will have to be a stronger role for the federal government because the current system, it has many flaws, uh, outrageously high drug prices, um, also incredible complexity for patients to navigate the system and poor electronic record keeping, although, as uh, uh, Zeke Emanuel points out, there have been some improvements in that in recent years. So, of course, I take the other side of this. But first, I want to completely agree our current system is a mess. And it's probably a mess because of years and years and layer upon layer of well-intentioned government programs to improve it, as Dr. Emanuel said. But I'm very leery about an even more heavy-handed federal role in healthcare, especially when it comes to things like regulating the price of drugs. There's never in history that I know of been a case where you regulate the price of something and you get more of it. So I looked up the most expensive drug that's on the market today. I'm pretty sure it's something called Zolgensma. It's made by Novartis. And a course of treatment costs over $2 million. So any normal person looks at this and says, wow, that's highway robbery. We should ban this kind of price gouging on the part of sick people. But 
Solgensma treats a very rare genetic disease called spinal muscular atrophy. It's a breakdown of the nerve cells that means a baby loses the ability to, or a small child, they lose the ability to sit up, swallow. Eventually, they, they can't even breathe. About 80% die before their fourth birthday. But only a few hundred kids have this each year. So people who want to regulate these kinds of outrageous prices are basically telling the pharma companies, hey, hey, don't bother coming up with rare treatments. For, I'm, and I'm not accusing Dr. Emanuel of this exactly, but I'm saying this is a long range effect of a price control regime. I don't see it as either or. I think that there can be more price controls put in place, or at least a, a stronger buying system for uh, Medicaid and Medicare without completely abolishing incentives. I think that we should be looking closely, for instance, at Switzerland, uh, which is home to two of the world's largest pharma companies, and seeing how you can have universal health care and have drug prices that aren't as outrageously high as they are now. Uh, in the U.S., we pay 56% more for the average drug than uh, European countries do. That's, that seems like a gap that's just too large. But to some degree, those companies are piggybacking on us. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so we fix that problem by having less drugs. And it's not so much the drugs that exist. I'm always worried about how the effects of your regulation create incentives down the road. If you're some guy with a lot of money or you're some, you know, pension fund and wanting to invest in the highest return businesses, are you going to invest in pharma where the returns are capped and really limited? Or are you going to move on and invest in some other field where you're you where there aren't you're not going to be facing price controls? All I know is that the U.S. spends about 18% of its uh, gross national product on health care, and it's closer to 10% in most countries with universal health care. I'm not saying we should borrow wholesale from every other country, but I do think that it forces us to look at that and say there has to be a limit somewhere. And I do think that with healthcare, you're never going to have the perfect system where everybody gets everything they want. And I'm saying, let's not screw it up even more. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Beggs. And thanks for joining us. And our producer, who you heard from earlier, is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, we're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Uh, check us out at DaviesContent.com. And if you want to support our solutions podcast, then please uh, go to Patreon.com and uh, chip in one or five dollars a month or some other figure that you can afford uh, you can just go to patreon.com and search how do we fix it thanks for listening this podcast is part of the democracy group hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.